In our last two lectures, we looked at the advocacy and fundraising strategies of NGOs. In the final three lectures, we're going to take a thematic approach and try to understand how do NGOs operate in certain segments, namely human rights, humanitarianism, and the environment. In this lecture, we're going to focus our attention on the human rights-oriented NGOs. In the post-World War II period, the human rights movement helped to create regional and international human rights regimes. Non-governmental organizations form part of a network of organizations working together on behalf of human rights. This was a network that included parts of global and regional intergovernmental organizations and private foundations. We can refer to this broad set of organizations as an international issue network. These networks differ from other forms of transnational relations, such as epistemic communities or transnationally organized interest groups, in that they are driven primarily by shared values or principal ideas. These are ideas about what is right and wrong, rather than shared causal ideas or instrumental goals. As hinted, an international issue network comprises of a set of organizations bound by shared values and by dense exchanges of information and services working internationally on an issue. The diverse entities that make up the International Human Rights Issue Network include parts of IGOs at both the international and regional levels, international NGOs on human rights, and domestic NGOs on human rights, as well as private foundations. Other issue networks will include a somewhat different array of actors, but international and domestic NGOs play a central role in all issue networks. They are the most proactive members of the networks, usually initiating actions and pressuring more powerful actors to take positions. The role of shared values as the basis of the issue networks helps explain the central involvement of many voluntary NGOs and networks. Activists join NGOs because they believe strongly in the principles of the organization, not because of any tangible benefits they may receive from membership. Since these organizations survive on donations, voluntary labor, and the, and the dedication of underpaid staff, the NGOs that succeed and thrive are those that have a strong message capable of mobilizing their staff, membership, and public opinion. The organizations in the network that have been the most important for human rights include the UN Commission on Human Rights, Amnesty International, and the Ford Foundation. To have a strong network, it must have a certain size and density. In other words, there should be enough actors to exist and be connected in order to speak meaningfully of a network. Much of the history of the emergence of the Human Rights Network is the story of the founding, growth, and linking of the organizations in the network. Groups in a network share values and frequently exchange information and services. The shared values that bind the actors in the Human Rights Network are embodied in international human rights law, especially the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This body of law serves to justify actions and provide a common language to make arguments and procedures to advance claims. The flow of information among actors in the network reveals an extremely dense web of interconnections amongst these groups. 
In most cases, this flow of information takes place informally through the exchange of reports, telephone calls, or attendance at conferences and meetings. In other cases, the connections are formalized as when NGOs with official consultative status with IGOs present reports to those organizations. A third type of interconnection amongst the organizations who have a human rights bent is the flow of funds and services. This is especially the case of relations amongst foundations and NGOs, but some NGOs may also provide services, such as training for other NGOs in the network. As a result of this exchange of information and services, of flows of funds and of shared norms and goals, the members of the issue network work together in a constant but informal, uncoordinated and non-hierarchical manner. There are two main international precursors to the human rights issue. The movement for respect for human rights during armed conflict and the campaign for the abolition of slave trade and slavery. NGOs brought the issue to public attention and they promoted international action. The Red Cross movement spearheaded the activities that created the law of human rights in armed conflict. A group of NGOs, the Anti-Slavery League, led the campaign to protect the rights of those held in slavery and eventually to abolish slavery. The League helped persuade states to adopt the 1926 Convention outlawing slavery. Likewise, at the San Francisco Conference at which the UN Charter was drafted, NGOs played a pivotal role in securing the inclusion of human rights language in the final charter. The initial big power drafts of the UN Charter had hardly mentioned human rights. NGOs representing churches, trade unions, ethnic groups, and peace movements, aided by the delegations of some of the smaller nations, conducted a lobby in favor of human rights for which there is no parallel in the history of international relations, and which was largely responsible for the human rights provision of the Charter. Although NGOs were central to the campaign against slavery and to the work of including human rights language in the UN Charter, they were not yet issue networks. They were relatively few actors and they, and they were not dense or were there no constant flows of information that characterize a network, so to speak. In the 1970s, as the number of human rights actors increased and these actors consciously developed linkages with each other, the human rights issue network emerged. Although international human rights norms emerged out of the, of the of a world reaction to the Holocaust, these norms were subordinated to anti-communism during the period of the Cold War. With the advent of the detente in the early 1970s, a more permissive environment was created for the consideration of human rights and the convergence of some shocking cases of human rights abuses, such as the ones witnessed in Chile or in Greece, moved public opinion. In reaction to these conditions, all types of human rights organizations in the network increased in the 1970s, with the expansion of NGOs in particular giving impetus to the growth of the network as a whole. Although some human rights organizations have existed for many years, in the 1970s and 1980s, human rights NGOs proliferated and increased in diversity. For example, there are approximately 
38 to 40 NGOs who had a human rights bench in the 1950s. By 1970, that doubled to about 100. By 1980, about 140. And in the 1990s, about 300 NGOs. This explosion of NGOs with a human rights bench is indicated not only by the increasing number of organizations, but also by the formation of coalitions and communication networks designed to link these groups together. In turn, these international human rights organizations develop strong links to domestic human rights organizations and nations experiencing human rights violations. This growth in human rights organizations parallels a more general growth in international NGOs in the post-World War II period. As opposed to the international NGOs, which work on human rights violations in other countries, domestic NGOs focus on human rights violations in their own home nations. Countries and regions differ dramatically in terms of the number and capability of their domestic human rights organizations. For example, in Latin America, there's more domestic human rights NGOs than do other parts of the developing world. For example, uh, in 1981, the directory of organizations concerned with human rights and social justice in the developing world discussed 220 such organizations in Latin America, compared with 145 in Asia and 123 in Africa and the Middle East. When we look at updated lists in the 1990s and 2000s, this reality is still pronounced. Of all the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean, only Grenada does not have a domestic human rights organization, while some countries have 50 to 60 such groups in present day. An international demonstration effect was at work in Latin America during the 1980s as the work and successes of the original human rights organizations in the region inspired others to follow their example. Prior to 1948, no IGO was dedicated to the issue of human rights. By the 1990s and early 2000s, about 30 of such organizations included human rights as a significant part of their work. These international organizations became the arenas where NGOs came together and a focal point for NGO work. In fact, the larger international NGOs with a human rights bent have UN consultative status. Such status comprises the formal procedure linking IGOs to international NGOs in the issue network and allows them to participate in the debates and activities of the UN. Both the UN Commission on Human Rights and the Subcommission on the Protection of Ethnic Minorities, which was set up after World War II, became more dynamic in the 1970s under the influence of the new rules and, and the pressures of international NGOs and some European governments. The Human Rights Committee began to function after the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights came into legal force for adhering states in 1976, providing yet another arena for the human rights debate and activism in the UN system. A handful of private and public foundations have been active in funding human rights organizations. The most important U.S.-based foundation has been the Ford Foundation, but a number of European funders have played key roles, especially European church foundations. 
in addition to private foundations, official uh, development assistance agencies in Canada, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, and the United States have also funded human rights NGOs. Prior to 1975, large U.S. foundations hardly ever funded international human rights work. From the mid-1970s onwards, U.S. foundation grants for human rights grew dramatically in terms of both the total number and especially the absolute dollar amounts of grants. The Ford Foundation accounts for much of this change, but a number of other foundations were redirected to giving towards human rights. Foundations did not create organizations or networks, and it's important for us to note that. They only helped to strengthen existing organizations. Foundations, by their nature, were quite responsive. They funded proposals from functioning organizations, but rarely initiated projects themselves. So this is what I mean that foundations are by nature responsive. Nevertheless, the move of a handful of foundations into human rights uh, funding help human rights organizations sustain themselves, institutionalize, and grow. What is the relationship of networks to government policy? In most cases, government human rights policy emerged as a response to network pressure and depended fundamentally on, on network information. For this reason, it is very difficult to separate the independent influences of government policy and network pressures. Networks often work through governments and other powerful actors to achieve their greatest impact. Government policy bodies provide arenas and points of leverage for the work of the network. For example, in the United States, the earliest governmental group to work actively in human rights was the House Subcommittee on International Organizations, later renamed the Subcommittee on Human Rights and International Organizations. Beginning in 1973, this subcommittee held a series of hearings on human rights abuses around the world that put into contact with many human rights advocates in the network. The primary witnesses providing human rights data and information in these hearings were the representatives of human rights NGOs. In the initial years, the Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs of the U.S. State Department formed during the Carter administration maintained close contacts with and sought out the information of NGOs. In European nations, points of influence within the state centered on ministries of foreign affairs and developmental sort of cooperation. In some cases, European governments institutionalized the links with other parts of the network. For example, the Dutch and the Norwegian executives initiated human rights advisory committees, which incorporated NGOs um, and ministries and parliamentarians and scholars together. Often the interaction between the network and bureaucratic groups within governments were mutually reinforcing. The U United States annual human rights reports provide a clear example of this interaction. Since State Department officials did not want to offend foreign officials or undermine other policy goals, their early human rights reports were often seen as weak. However, the State Department reports did serve as a focal point for human rights groups, which were able to create annual public events by issuing responses to these reports. 
The reports and counter-reports attracted press coverage on human rights, and the critiques of the State Department reports held the department up to higher standards in its future reporting. Domestic human rights organizations and repressive nations, in turn, learned that they could indirectly pressure the governments uh, to change practices by providing information on human rights abuses to human rights officers for inclusion in country-specific reports. Needless to say, the link up to government is simultaneously the most powerful and least dependable aspect of the work of the issue network. The effectiveness of the network often depends on engaging support from governments. When network contacts with the government are informal and not institutionalized through NGO advisory committees, changing personnel can block access between the network and the government. We have seen a dramatic growth in each part of the human rights network in the 1970s, 1980s, into the 2000s. This growth alone poses problems to state sovereignty, since each new human rights organization embodies a reconceptualized view of state sovereignty, whereby international scrutiny of domestic human rights practices is not only legitimate, but also necessary. To demonstrate the impact of the network in practice, however, we need to look at the effectiveness of these pressures in specific cases. This concludes our lecture on human rights. In our next lecture, we will be looking at humanitarianism.